But a brand will not function. A trademark doesn't function. You can't get protection for it. And I think this is a good lesson for anyone, whether they're registering or not, unless it uniquely identifies a single source. So if you create a brand for cannabis, when someone sees that brand, it should be unique to your company, either as a dispensary or as a product company. So it shouldn't be confusingly similar to another company. Otherwise, you do a great job with your brand and some of it bleeds over to the other guys. Like they get the benefit of it. Like it's not unique. So when people choose highly descriptive brands, they say Canaverde 420, that's my go-to bad example. I already forgot what your brand is because you sound like every other brand out there. Someone else could be Verde 420 corner. And I, I would literally not remember because there's nothing distinguishing. Those are just all synonym words in a different order. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host, Shada Taravi, and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And today I want to use this introduction time to talk about an interesting article that I came across recently that was published in Allure. It was titled, We Are Gathered Here Today to Say Goodbye to CBD Beauty. And I just want to pause right there because I want to give an opportunity to tie in this topic. I'll talk about it a little bit later after I get through the article, but into just an overall conversation around the power and opportunity that hemp has offered to the cannabis conversation at large. I do remember the height, the excitement. I have some friends who have CBD specific beauty brands or products that are specifically using CBD. And it was on the up and up until it plateaued. And so when I came across this article, it was a little bit of a, huh, okay, interesting, not surprised, but also what's going on. So I just wanted to kind of set that stage a little bit for you as you're listening to what this article goes into unpacking. So basically, the article highlights and it starts with some data from Spate, which is a consumer insights platform. It said in 2019, the search term CBD beauty was peaking at 57,000 searches. And that then is compared to searches most recently, basically between June of 2022 and June of 2023. So presently, stating that searches for the term CBD beauty are down 63% year over year. Now, I'm not shocked by this. I understand the tumultuous landscape that these brands were navigating, whether CBD was in all their products, it was an ingredient they tried to nod to in creative, nondescript ways, whether it was something they intentionally wanted to incorporate or just felt that it was trendy or honestly, maybe it was even actually helpful as an ingredient in these certain products when it comes to topicals and skincare, et cetera. And I'll be the first to say that I do believe that CBD has its merit when it comes to an ingredient to help specifically with things like inflammation. But again, going back to these brands navigating this, I applaud them because I think when hemp became federally legalized, a lot of people saw an opportunity to be able to leverage where that was going, what that was opening up. And again, like I mentioned, I remember seeing the height of this. But it certainly plateaued and according to Allure has officially deceased. And so I want to just understand a little bit more why and what's going on. And so the article definitely shares some of the challenges from an operating perspective as a brand who, whether again, it's their main product, their sole line, an added ingredient, whatever the case, when you have CBD on your label, inherently makes what you're doing that much harder, whether it's getting banking, processing, social media, marketing, especially selling these products through these channels. Like these brands, a lot of them wanted to sell on Amazon, but what we're finding continuously over and over again is despite these platforms saying they aren't censoring, they actually very much are censoring and penalizing these brands. So these brands are like, fuck, why would I put CBD in 
my product when I'm going to get penalized and I could get rid of the CBD ingredient and I can have a long runway to take my skincare or topical brand further. So it's just an interesting shift we're seeing happening. And the article goes on to highlight a very prolific brand in the space called Lord Jones. I remember them distinctively. They were one of the first like big CBD, sexy, loved their brand, just beautiful visuals, beautiful graphics, beautiful packaging. And they really were helping to make space for CBD early on. And they would go on to be considered a leader in the beauty space. Specifically, I remember seeing them being sold at SoulCycle, which again, like time and place, if you're thinking about 2019, this is the height of CBD. It's legal, but people are still associating it with cannabis. And so for a brand like SoulCycle to basically open up their shelf space to Lord Jones to sell their CBD products, like it was huge. And you've seen the ripple effects, of course, the rise and fall. So I remember seeing Sephora, Ulta, other beauty chains, other beauty stores beginning to bring in these types of products. And they're not performing, they're not selling. So it makes me wonder, is it because the products aren't effective? Or is it because consumers just don't care? Or something in the middle, or maybe something that I'm not even paying attention to at all. But from a Lord Jones perspective, really quick wanted to highlight too, they stated their closure of Lord Jones as is being due to wanting to reopen or relaunch in the adult use regulated market. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's just them politely licking their wounds and backing out of the corner they found themselves in. But again, I'm wondering what was the failed attempt to get consumers to buy into CBD beauty as a category? Again, I'm not here to say it isn't effective. I'll be the first to tout the powers of CBD, specifically when it comes to topicals. I love THC and topicals. I saw a lot of products leveraging it from an inflammation perspective, especially helping with facial inflammation. But again, when that is ingredient, maybe not your main ingredient, it's a really hard sell when you are trying to sell through channels like Sephora and even Amazon. And so the article shares countless more stories of beauty brands that were hoping to see their market evolve instead of contract. And the collective sentiment from these brands was that they basically just feel like they have more potential for their beauty formulas if they can advertise it and get it out there. And so most are opting to either reduce or remove CBD altogether in their products. So it's unfortunate. But again, these beauty brands are realizing, hey, this is preventing me from getting traction or getting into X, Y, or Z store or being able to sell through X, Y, or Z channel or leverage X, Y, or Z advertising platform. So they're realizing anything related to cannabis in their list of ingredients is a hindrance to them being able to market their products effectively. And that is something that I think we, again, we're hopeful seeing them breach the barrier from a CBD hemp perspective, but now it's coming back and biting us a little bit in the face. So Sephora declined to comment for this story, but they've clearly pulled way back on their CBD beauty offerings. Four years after the company started selling CBD products in their stores and online, Sephora.com's CBD skincare page only includes four brands with a total of 11 products which again is a shocking retraction from where things had started out four years ago. And so I'm left wondering, what do you think of cannabis skincare and topicals in general? Because again, I love a good CBD THC salve, and I'm probably one of the few who is fascinated with a transdermal patch. But when I'm going to dispensaries, specifically and predominantly in Colorado recently, I'm not seeing a ton of product brands in this space. I'm also not seeing a ton of product differentiation in this space. And again, I know that selling through a dispensary and selling through a beauty store like Sephora are completely different channels. But the sentiment of CBD in something that goes on my skin is more or less the root at what I'm trying to understand. And I just want to understand do customers care? Is it effective? Are they over it? And what does that mean for the regulated side of these types of cannabis skincare and topical products. So I think that this is a great segue into today's guest discussion, which features Seth Garden Swartz of Black Garden Law. And 
I really think it's important to think of the article by Allure as a point in history. Again, I recall seeing CBD products going into these big beauty stores and thinking, this is it. We're making progress. And yet here we are just a few years later and the beauty side of this industry is on to another trend, leaving what's left in the dust. So does that make those brands who stepped out on a ledge irrelevant? Were they before their time? Did they have the wrong go-to-market strategy? And a million other questions could be asked, but for whatever reason, it is a lesson to be learned. So going back to Seth, we actually recently met at the Cannabis Marketing Summit this past June and we instantly hit it off. I clearly have a lot of hot topic opinions, but when Seth started contributing back, I was like, okay, here we go. Someone who is equally invested in figuring things out for the industry and asking the tough questions. And so I knew he would make a great guest on the podcast. He graduated with his law degree from SMU in Dallas and then set up his practice in Colorado before ending back up in his home state of New Mexico, where he's expanded his practice to help with trademark brand development intellectual property, licensing, and general business law for cannabis brands all across the United States. But Seth is a marketer at heart, and that's how he approaches solving problems for his clients. He's always thinking about how this is going to add or take away from their ultimate brand equity. And the root of our conversation, which you'll get to hear here in a moment, was around this idea of building a brand at scale building a brand for the test of time. And it ultimately left me wondering, can cannabis get there? Can the cannabis industry sustain a brand that is around for 40 plus years, one that is sold in every marketplace across the United States that you can think of from online to offline and even be direct to consumer? Is that possible? Is it too early to tell? What will a brand that is around for 40 years look like in our industry? It was a really fascinating conversation. Surely we could have kept going on, but the conversation that I'm about to share with you is certainly one to tune into. So thanks for pressing play. And I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. So without further ado, please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Seth to the show. Laura, so my name is Seth Gardenswartz, S-E-T-H, Gardenswartz, just like it sounds, not like you think there's no C-H in there. <laughs> I, I grew up in New Mexico. And I grew up in a family that had retail stores and all up and down from Colorado into El Paso. So I grew up with that very nuts and bolts relationship with customers and also relationship with brands because we were a retailer, right? We didn't make the brands. We, we were a service company. And to make a long story short, when my family sold that business, I needed a skill, I thought. And so I went to law school. And so I usually say that I'm really a marketing branding guy who happened to go to law school rather than a technician of certain things. Um, I went to law school in Texas. I went and started my practice in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and I worked primarily in tech, which was really, you know, one of, it's still one of my passions. I really enjoyed the tech industry. I, tech, I enjoyed the disruption, the creativity, and I really enjoyed applying what my grandfather used to call the rules, which don't change, to the tools, which are things like e-commerce and DTC and content-based marketing, things like you know, all the newfangled stuff. I... A few years after I began my practice, I began to work for in-house for a SaaS um, marketing platform. And we did work for small and medium-sized businesses, um, day spas, salons, resorts, from little bitty uh, place in a little retail location to big hotel affiliated places. And we'd branched out into a couple of other things. I had the itch to do some other things. And so I kind of broke out from there. I started a little solo practice. I started and still operate a marketing company on the side. And I, my second year or so in private practice, I bumped into one of my wife's good friends. Um, my wife put us on a panel together when she was doing tech transfer for the National Lab. And we've been partners ever since. And the minute we started working together, um, we have very different sort of practice specialties. And it's my wife who really saw that, that was a real advantage for clients. So she's a corporate security specialist. So she handles things like investment and corporate structure and payouts for partners and investors and things like that. And my background is really in IP and tech and vendor relationships and, and B2B relationships and really brand and mark, trademark and brand and so forth. And what I really love about that is trademark law is unusually practical in the sense that it makes sense if you really take the time to understand it. And 
it's a place that requires, I think, a deep understanding of what marketing really means and what brands really mean and what customers are trying to do. And so I really like that. I don't think I'd be practicing law at all today if I couldn't do a lot of trademark work because it's so exciting and fun. We had very little exposure to the cannabis business until about three and a half years ago. And every time the two founders of the firm talked about it, we said, mm-hmm. one of them was, I don't know, do we want to be dope lawyers? And the other, and just practically, we were thinking kind of small. We were thinking about our home state and there were, it was medical only. There was a fixed number of licensees. It was not that many and they all had counsel. We just like, why bother? And then what happened is we wound up getting a really large industrial hemp client and that opened our eyes. Like we were like, wow, this is a big, sophisticated market with a lot of applications and a lot of different parties interested. And so we started researching it. And around that same time, our clearly adult use was heading towards passage. And so right as the, the governor of New Mexico signed that adult use into law, which started a clock running of about, there's like 14 or 16 months till sales were going to start. It dawned on us that all of these people who were interested in doing adult use cannabis and even the existing parties were suddenly really in business and they didn't, but we looked around, there were very few people focusing on the business side of it. Most of our colleagues and the other thing we'd work, I wasn't going to like trying to compete with other well-established cannabis attorneys, but when I went and talked to them all, they were all doing licensure and regulatory work. And they were like, Ooh, multi-member LLC. Mm. So we were like, all right, let's do that. And I, I had a feeling the brand side was going to come because when I talked about initially, no, like, oh yeah, we don't worry about that. Our name is Verde 420 High Place. And I'm like, mm, it's not going to work. But interestingly, another friend of mine who was one of the partners in one of those vertically integrated OG medical, he calls him a day. He's like, hey man, well, help me out. It's a trademark thing. I'm like, sure. And it was just so damn cool. I was like, this is cool. There's no rules. There's no guidelines. There's no well-paved roads with directions. And it required a lot of -of out-of-the-box sort of thinking and and counseling. And so I got really motivated around that. So we, what we didn't do was dip our toe in. We jumped in. We took, as a, again, it's a pretty small firm. And I took about two months where I spent more than half my time just learning about cannabis. Because everything I knew before that, I'd learned from, I'd learned in high school and college. It was a different scene, right? I went to school a while ago. So we got really involved and really interested. And we just realized that these cannabis businesses really need counsel. Like they need someone not to just fill in the blanks on a form doc for them, but to understand what they're trying to accomplish because there's no one way and there's no best way necessarily to do anything. You really have to work these things out. And so ironically, like we're here to talk about brands, all this fun, sexy marketing stuff that you and I both love, but the business side is like really sucked us in because we were really out there as a, because some of the other firms who did it, they didn't want to do cannabis or they had one lawyer in a much larger firm who did some cannabis work. And we were like, oh yeah, we got really practiced at asking a bunch of questions. Are you going to own any other real estate? What's the investor group look like? What's the, what's your long-term plan? Or are you going to be vertically integrated? Are you going to focus on this and that? And so we just, we worked with some tax attorneys and, and we came up with some, not necessarily one way to do it, but a way to approach the client and really understand them. And just like a marketing agency, if you're going to hire a marketing agency, you don't say, hi, we want to do more sales. Will you make some pictures for us? Like you want them to sit down and get to know you and understand what your goals are, what your segment is. Cause the okay. last thing you want them to do is build a brand that doesn't resonate. Doesn't So anyway, so that was too long an introduction, but that's how we got to where, and then I went to the Cannabis Market Association and we got to meet and that's, I love this industry. You make fun, creative people. No, that's beautiful. I totally appreciate hearing that from your own words. I think, again, it's so important to understand the different journeys that people are taking. And obviously, like you highlighted, you studied in Texas, you started your practice in Colorado, you're operating in New Mexico. Before we were hitting record, you mentioned that you have clients all over the United States, obviously, too, like you just highlighted, coming from the hemp side, then transitioning, I'm sure, into the regulated, the medical market, all things in between. I would love to start because you said something really interesting that it resonated with me. And this is a little bit of, I guess, an aha for me, because I want to hear from your perspective, too. Traditionally, people are looking at cannabis 
lawyers, cannabis law firms, specifically from the compliance and regulation standpoint, is what I'm doing legal? Can I sell these products? What does the law say? And then what the law says is how I then respond. You obviously saw an opportunity to come in a little bit more on the business side, specifically to having a passion for branding and marketing. I want to hear from you. Where is the intersection from your perspective between branding and marketing from a legal application, if that makes sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so deep passion. Yay. So, you know, people say things like, oh, the Nike logo is the company's largest asset, right? And people say stuff like that. And, and if I say that, it sounds super self-serving, right? Like I'm trying to, and... But the marketer in me understands that. I look at those right, things, I right. see those icons, and that is just as right. much about the brand as the products they're selling, right? It, it, exactly. So what I like to tell people when they bring something like that up is, it's not that the brand itself is, is where the value is, right? In, in fact, the brand by itself, and on the day it was created, had zero value, like basically nothing. It's really, if you're building a building, people think about the building is where all the value is. They walk into the building, it's just a gorgeous building and so forth. But the, the, the land is what it sits on. And if you don't own the land, if you don't have control of the land, you're not gonna really own that building. And so with the brand is the representation of all of the good or bad things that the customer or the, the purchasing public perceives around the brand. And so like Michael Eisner has a beautiful quote about it. It's like, brands are not static, they're living things. They get enhanced or degraded with every interaction, something like that, I'm paraphrasing. And it's totally true, right? So if you look at a brand like Nike, for example, this is like four decades, billions of dollars a year in sales and marketing and all these other things. And they've made mistakes. We were a dealer for a long time, but they have consistently performed and focused. And when you think about, when you see that swoosh, you just, you have a feeling like that's all, that's the, the brand just, I call it like the IP address to the mental real estate mm. that, that they have, they have managed to get a hold of. So you see that brand, you're like, oh, like when you see a brand for, I don't know, when you see a brand for Bob's Big Boys, like to go back a couple of decades, you have a feeling about that brand. It feels, you might remember what it was like when your parents took you there as a kid, or if you have one of those in, in your hometown. And you see brands like Saab Motor Company, right? Like they're out of business. They're totally out of business because of an IT issue. But that brand, people still adhere to that. If somebody could get control of that brand, they can't. But if they, if they could, if somebody could work it out, they could make cars or make car accessories under that brand. And people recognize it and go, oh, I remember my cousin had a Saab. It was really cool. That it's hard. You have to create it over time and you can degrade it over time. Obviously, events and money can make things go faster. Right. If you have a Firestone had a problem with one of the defect of one of their tires, their stock fell. Like their brand was like, I heard of that. But they they did a really good job addressing it. And now no one remembers it. I remember it because it, it's a it's an example of of how brand equity was temporarily suppressed. But it it came back. Now if you started a new tire company. It wouldn't matter what the logo is. And I had this fascinating conversation with an agency who works in cannabis, actually, about the process of creating a logo or a brand identity for a client. And they were like, and this is the right thing to do is they, they want to create a brand identity around what the client wants. But they're really just creating a vessel. It's, I can go find a really gorgeous half of bison glass, the right glassware, traditional German glassware for traditional German wheat beer, right? And I was like, oh, I got the right glass. But if the beer sucks, the client's going to remember that glass and the beer in it as sucking. Doesn't matter how cool that, the, they'll remember the glass. That glass represents crappy beer, right? Doesn't matter how cool it is. Doesn't matter how beautiful it is. It's in, in branding law, but also in the real world. It, we call it secondary meaning when the brand itself begins to mean something other than what it means on its own. So I'm talking to you. I think we're both talking to each other on Apple devices, right? Like I've got, this is an Apple laptop. I've got Apple earbuds in. You appear to have Apple earbuds in. And there's secondary meaning in the world when the word Apple now. Like when you hear Apple or something you hear it in a certain context, you don't think red delicious or pink lady. No, you're, you, you have 
that other meaning pops into your head. And it's not just, gee, I wonder what the clock speed of my processor is. No, it's like that whole thing. So in cannabis, I think when people often, they think about, and this is common in industries that haven't yet reached real maturity, is they think about things like, oh, we have the best weed. Like, dude, that is not a brand statement. Everyone says they have the best. No one says, hey, we've got second grade weed. They don't, dude, we have the best fruit weed. And then they have like signs outside their dispensary that, that talk about how much it costs per gram. Like those are not brand statements. Like those, if you have the best weed, people don't care or people can't afford it, will pay for it. It's a, it's a different kind of story. So when I think about cannabis has swiftly become a competitive market, you've got brand equity, people will drive further, spend a dollar more, wait, put up with more mistakes. Like the, if people have a good experience, like come to your dispensary, people have, the butt tenders are, are nice. And then so much of the business is still sold as flour, which is definitionally generic. Like Gorilla Glue is not a brand right. it's any more than, than Red Delicious is a brand. It's almost like it's a type, it, it, it doesn't differentiate any source, right? It just tells you what the ingredients are essentially. So it's saying, oh, we grow it better. It's like, all right, it's a tough road to hope. But if you've finished it in an infused pre-roll or in a tincture or in a cart or something like that's totally different. And then you get to own the brand. And then I, lots, I see a lot of times people have their, like their sleep product and they call it sleep. Okay. If you've got your house brand and then you're like perform, sleep, relax, all right, that's fine. But you probably want more than three or four products. You might want to have dozens of products, right? You might want to have a, the whole edible line that's geared towards a, a segment, right? Because edible consumers are definitionally a little bit segmented from other, other portions. Like, dude, create a brand. And then, by the way, consumers will ask for it. And if you choose to, you don't have to sell it even in your own dispensary, or you might not have dispensaries at all, depending on what state you're in. We have, and I think that's the most important uh, point to make in this industry is, Here's an industry where you can't get federal trademark protection for cannabis and you can't transport products across state lines, but brands are magic. Brands move across state lines. Brands move in the minds of the consumers. So if you've figured it out, if you've got a really good brand, so you mentioned one, I think a good example, they've got a really good national brand and they've been very consistent and their standards are high. And they've got products based on certain things and for certain people and they've got fast acting and traditional and all this stuff. And so, yeah, they're in multiple states, not because they're obviously you can't truck stuff across the line, but they've taken that brand and say, okay, you can use this brand under these circumstances. Like you're going to be a partner. You're going to grow. We've got standards for what your genetics are and how you grow it. And then here's how we're going to process it. And we don't want our gummies to be like lumpy masses that all at 86 degrees just turn into one massive 200 milligram blob. Like they, they, they've set that up. So if you have a, one of their products in Colorado or in California, it's going to be pretty similar. And that's fundamental to a brand tenant consistency. When you're driving down the highway in West Texas, and I know you do, right. And you're like, oh my God, I need clean bathroom, an internet connection, and a decent cup of coffee. Right? right? You have a brand that represents Absolutely. all those things. And frankly, at that moment, you'll probably say, gee, am I looking for a really adventurous new experience that might be great and might be awful? Like, probably not. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good for pretty good most of the time. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose that on that continuum. You, you're going to make a brand choice there. So Domino's does not claim to be the best pizza. But that's not their brand promise. Their brand promise is you're going to get a pretty reasonable pizza in about 30 minutes from wherever you are when you're hungry. Like that's their brand promise. And they do that better than any gourmet top end pizza joint that I've ever heard of. Like they absolutely, now they're really a technology company these days. They're a service company. They're very upfront about that. They have massive investment in IT to deliver what they have designed to be a mediocre product. They don't want it to be more expensive and fancier and harder to order because that's not what that customer segment needs. So that's important. So back to cannabis, when you're talking about what your brand's going to represent and how you're going to grow it, you really want to have a, first of all, a brand that you can own. And when 
new clients or people who are relatively new to any business, whether it's beer or tech or something, they come to us, they say, and often after we spent a fair amount of money with the branding agency, they say, hey, here's our brand. How much to trademark this, right? Or something like that. And first of all, what they're asking in the beginning is, can I use this brand? Like, am I okay to use this mark? Can someone else stop me from using it? And often that comes with, hey, I want to make sure I can use this brand. I've checked the USPTO.gov and it's clear. And so let me tell you what none of the people who work in our law firm ever say to me. I've checked this and it's clear, ever. It's like, how clear or cloudy is it? Is it like medium? Is it pretty clear? And you better show me the top three or four potential obstacles, right? The only way to get it crystal clear is if you make up a new word that doesn't sound like any other word in the most commonly spoken languages in the United States. Like, like you, you, and our, our uh, equivalent translations. Is so, this a problem just for cannabis or is this something no. across the board with trademarks in general? Across People are the, always trying to come up with something independent and new. And so how does that impact cannabis brands trying to go after some sort of protection if it's even harder for us to get that approval from it, a federal government? It, it's even harder. But the point I wanted to make first is that people say, can I use this? Which is cool. That's important. But what you're asking is, can someone else stop me from using it? But mature brands ask a different question. They say, can I stop someone else from using this brand? Mm -hmm. Like that's what the P in property stands for. When you say IP, like you don't have property unless you have some exclusive right. So when you go back to choosing your brand, people say this brand or that brand. And I definitely will have an opinion, but I'm not the creative in the room. But what I do say is you want the most distinct brand. You want the one that distinguishes you. And then you'll make that brand mean who you are over time for better and for worse, right? Like you'll, as people inter interact with it, but a brand will not function. A trademark doesn't function. You can't get protection for it. And I think this is a good lesson for anyone, whether they're registering or not, unless it uniquely identifies a single source. So if you create a brand for cannabis, when someone sees that brand, it should be unique to your company, either as a dispensary or as a product company. So it shouldn't be confusingly similar to another company. Otherwise, you do a great job with your brand. And some of it bleeds over to the other guys. Like they, they get the, the, the benefit of it. Like it's not unique. So when people choose highly descriptive brands, they say Canaverde 420, like that, that's why go to bad example, like I already forgot what your brand is because you sound like every other brand out there. Someone else could be Rode 420 corner. And I, I would literally not remember because there's nothing distinguishing. Those are just all synonym words in a different order. Yeah. yeah, this is not a URL. This is a way that people think. And if it's watch reading a color that is written in one color and spells another color, like your brain doesn't work that way. Your brain is it, it just shuts down. It, yeah. it like never gets that right because it's working at it in two ways. So first of all, brands are important because if you're going to grow, you want the ability to grow across state lines. And, and even if you're not going to grow across state lines, if you're in a big, awesome state like Texas, you've got a lot of, you've got many, millions and millions of people there, but you want to be able to distinguish your brand. So Someone doesn't say, oh, I got these gummies I really like and they really helped me with blah, blah, blah. Oh, cool. What were they called? Canna Verde 420. And so you go into the, your local dispensary and they got Verde Canna 24. And they're like, that's my brand. And you, so they give you very much. You helped someone else get a sale. Hey, To Be Blunt fam, it's Shada here. And I want to give a shout out to my own brand of premium cannabis products, Restart CBD. As a daily user myself, I can personally attest to the effectiveness of our cannabis tinctures, topicals, edibles, and specifically our hemp-derived Delta 9 THC offerings. Whether I'm dealing with stress, body aches, or just need a boost in focus, Restart has a product and cannabinoid that can make me feel better. And our customers have been loving Restart too. Here are some actual quotes from our fans. 
Juice said, customer service alone deserves a five star. Always super generous when we come here. Also very professional and knowledgeable. Why, thank you very much. We take those five stars and we raise you a high five. And then Laura said, this is the absolute best dispensary I've ever been to. It's run by three sisters who are all equally knowledgeable about every product they sell. Ah, Laura, thank you for seeing us. We really are out here acting like a sponge, just trying to soak up all the information. So if you're looking for quality cannabis products from CBD to Delta 8, and yes, even Delta 9, we got you. Head to restartcbd.com. By the way, we ship nationwide. All our products are federally legal and hemp derived. So use the code 2BTOBE at checkout to get $5 off your first order on me. Our team is dedicated to providing you with the best cannabis products on the market, and we're proud to be sponsors of To Be Blunt. Thanks for supporting my brand and my podcast, and let's all restart our day with Restart CBD. I feel like, unfortunately, that is happening too often in cannabis, too, which is where I've gotten really excited and energized. And again, I I do think more in the Nikes, the Starbucks, the Apple scenarios, like they've distinguished themselves and made really great brands. You brought up a point earlier, too, that I wanted to reinforce around the brand is half the equation. It's like the vessel for what you do. And obviously some brands have, I also come from a PR background. And I like to believe that all press is is decently good press, but we all know sometimes, especially in our industry, there's bad press. And obviously just in general, sometimes these hits can affect a brand's equity, their value and the perception of their target consumer. With that said though, I do wanna highlight for listeners, as much as branding, it's almost like it pains me to say this. It's like, yes, but you highlighted it. You can have a great shell, but if the product inside the shell is shit, are you trying to make a sale for today or make a sale for tomorrow, next month, next year? And I think that's where I observe some cannabis brands. Oh, I've got the best brand and it's buzzing 420 and it's green and Rasta colors. And you're like, yeah, you and everybody else thought that, but okay, way to set yourself apart. And so it's been really exciting seeing creativity really blossom and people are starting to speak to different consumers. Now, as you were talking, it made me want to ask you this question. I'm really curious how you're going to answer it. On one end, you see that cannabis is still very immature as a market. Obviously, getting brand protection is something that is easier said than done in certain circumstances and situations. But I aspire to like a Nike, a Starbucks, an Apple. We're talking about these really premier brands that you pointed it out as well, too. It's not that Nike was Nike the day that Nike launched. Nike became Nike over time, certainly over steps and choices that they made that are building that brand to be that way. Do you see or think that cannabis can ever get there, considering that to build a brand, you need longevity? And I think our industry struggles with longevity. There are certainly really well-known brands, Med Men comes to mind where they were really prolific. And I would say they still have a brand. They still have equity. Um, High Times is another one. People for the most part think positively of them, but I think the companies themselves have gone through some changes to where it's not the same. I was just talking with somebody earlier about cookies, love cookies or hate cookies, but they've got this brand equity, but they've also got really crappy products in some circumstances. And so It's one thing to be like, oh, I'm going to build a brand, which is great. But then can you actually build that brand to weather the storm of cannabis? And that's something that I just haven't seen probably because the industry is so immature, like I highlighted. Like, do you think Juana had stepped up to the plate to do that? There's other brands that come to mind for me as well. But that's not saying that things couldn't change in the next six months, six years. And so for me, again, looking at it, when you're trying to build a Nike out, that happened over decades, arguably. And so can cannabis brands even get there? And, and maybe is that something you're seeing now? Or is it laughable for these, for, for, for those of us in the industry to think, oh, I'm going to be a so-and-so caliber brand. Not that you right. shouldn't aspire for that, but be right. realistic looking at it from a legal lens compared to other industries that you've operated in. I'm not saying it can't happen in cannabis. I just, I think it's really difficult right now. So I'm just curious what all that resonates with you. I think that it's got less to do with the industry 
and more to do with the discipline and and deciding what you really want to do and, and sticking to it. So Nike started as a value alternative, a lower priced alternative to Adidas shoes. They were made in Asia. They were made in Japan. Everyone thought that was crazy because back in those days in the 60s, Japanese construction was cheaper. Like it was offshore. It was, it was inexpensive. And they, today they're like Marvel hero worship. Like they got a completely different segment. It is really easy. And you pointed out as a brand begins to take off to harvest some of that brand equity. And when I say harvest, cut it to the root, not clip the buds off. And so very, you see all the time brands get really big and very successful and have a lot of equity and they sell at a, at a high multiple maybe. And then new company comes in, they don't really understand the business. They don't really care about the business. And maybe they spent too much on it. So they just start flooding the market with, it doesn't have to be lower quality goods. They just flood the market. And then suddenly it's not unique anymore. And so like Lacoste, when I was in the seventies, Lacoste was a super high-end brand. You couldn't wear those shirts out. They were un unbelievable. And they only sold them at pro shops, at tennis pro shops. And so it got to be really hip thing. And there was so much pressure on a company to open up distribution to sell at mass market, even fashion retailers. And they did. And suddenly, it's like, gee, everyone's got Lacoste shirts now. It's not special anymore. I don't feel special yeah, when I wear it. it. Right. So the value, exactly. That's the word we use in, in, in trademark on dilution. If I've got a brand similar to your brand, it doesn't have to be the same, just similar. But by me doing something different in the marketplace, I dilute your brand. I dilute your brand recognition, equity, et cetera. So back to can it happen in cannabis. So first of all, on the protection side, people will often ask attorneys, can I trademark this for cannabis? Right. What you mean to say is to register this mark for cannabis. And an attorney will absolutely correctly answer the question, no. Because it's true. You can't get a federal trademark to do things that are not federally legal, right? That can be lawfully used in commerce. But that's not the right question. Yeah. The People say, can I do this or how much to do this? And one time a, a client asked me, how much to register this brand, this, this logo? And I was like, I will answer that question for you. Or a different question. One of two. You get to pick. The second question is, what's the best, most cost-effective way for me to protect my brand. Mm. So which question would you like me to answer? Because this is a different question. So yes, you cannot register in class 34 smokable cannabis with THC in it. Can't do that. But if you're operating in Colorado or Texas or Maryland, where we have an office now, you can register, if it's state legal, you can take advantage of the state trademark system. Like no one paid attention to state trademarks. Many people didn't, and a lot of reasons not to. But if you've got a business that's focused in the state and and just at least when you're starting licensure wise, you are focused in the state, absolutely get some state protection. We have filed so many state trademarks in California, in Colorado, in New Mexico, in Florida, in all these other places to help clients protect at least within the bounds of their state. So now that protection is not nearly as robust as federal protection, but it it's a hurt. step to have something. Right. It, it, there's, there's a couple elements in the picket fence that's protecting your brand. And then the other thing is, what are you doing that is federally legal that we can, we can, so many people will say, oh, I got it for apparel, for, you're not really an apparel company. Cookies is, cookies is interesting. They sold a million dollars of apparel last yeah, year, I was, I was told. Yeah. But that's just a signal of brand equity. They're not really a t-shirt company. They're like, I affiliate with, with that brand. So I will put that brand on my body. So I'm wearing a Biore t-shirt right now. And that brand kind of fits with me. Like I'm, I'm cool with it. It's got a sort of athleisure work to it. It's technical. It's, it's sustainable. You know, they use, so well, I'm okay having this brand on my body. There are some brands I just wouldn't, but that's because the quality is not right, but because it doesn't fit with me. And it's, it, it's less valuable to, to me. I'd put something over it if I had to, right? So I mean, you can think of sports apparel license a girl that way. Like you're saying you're affiliate, you're a Cowboys fan or you're a Texans fan, or you're saying something about yourself really by putting that label on you. So I think understanding, first of all, yeah, you got to think it out early on. What can I do for brand protection? And don't choose the Canaverde 420 mark. Make something that's actually distinct. And then 
it t- to your point, there's a lot of discipline when your brain is starting to really take off to just harvest the value out. You've been toiling away, not taking much money out of the, it's a lot of times, I talk to founders all the time. Founders are not making a lot of money. Usually they're investing most of their money. They're, they're hiring people, paying them more than they're taking out of, out of the company. And they're like, oh, wow, my brand's kind of worth a lot of money now. I could open up some distribution and, and harvest the value out. If you do that too fast, you don't, like in cannabis in particular, where you're doing it through license operations, you really want to vet your partners and understand if every time they sell one of your products, both parties should benefit. They should be able to sell more and sell faster because they're riding on your brand that you're doing the work to create and has some brand equity from surrounding states and other things like that. And you want them to build and distribute the product in a way that, that works for you, that's effective. So REI sells a lot of Patagonia. But they sell a lot more of their own brand, which they knock off to make a lot like the Patagonia, but $200 less. For, yeah. for, so instead of a $700 triple gore yeah. shell with bit zips and tape seams, you've got a $400. Seams aren't taped, two layer. Maybe it's a, maybe it's like, it's a gore analog. But if, depending on how often you're, you're going to use it, how hard you're going to use it, might be just fine. That's, you think about where you're going to fit in to that brand is, and, and what REI d- does for Patagonia, that relationship, is they show their line, they sell enough of it that people know they can buy it and they know that they can have it serviced and, and so forth. And that they do it, believe me, if they started really pushing their own stuff over and saying that that's overpriced or whatever else, the relationship would end. Like it's a good codependent relationship. It's synergy is the 80s term we used to talk about. So that's the ideal thing you want to have in a brand partner relationship. And keep in mind, the other thing I get here all the time is, oh, I'm going to build this company, I'm going to license my brand in the adjacent state. Really? Why is someone going to license your brand? I'm just curious. It's beautiful. It doesn't mean anything at all today. Like it's got to mean something to them. When I've been in a room, people are like, I hear cookies is coming to my state. What are we going to do? Dude, I don't know. All the weed's going to be growing here. So why don't you build another brand? Why don't you become the licensee Mm. or decide that you're going to build a brand? Like me, or maybe there's a, I've worked with manufacturers we're like, okay, we're going to build some brands. We're going to, we're going to build some brands that the, our local clients can use and they'll be, cause it's not one dispensary, one dispensary unit. We can spend a little bit on packaging. We can really have some professional stuff. There was a great slide at the at unpacked I saw that showed brand dominance in states segregated by maturity. Mm. And so in immature states, the out-of-state, the top 10 brands are much more dominant because there are no developed brands in the home state, right? There's just aren't any. And then over time, and the data right now has a lot of bigger states in it, like Colorado and and, uh, California and so forth. The local brands begin to take some of that back because they are able to perform in the marketplace. And there's definitely a little bit of a tournament aspect to this where not everyone understands that they're really in a consumer goods and service business when they get in they're like dude i have a license i'm i have a i have a license to print money like mm-hmm. we're gonna need a big retainer that's that's always dangerous because you don't have a license to print money you actually have a license to work in a very difficult competitive and complicated industry with a ton of regulatory background a byzantine and oppressive tax environment it, it, it ain't easy the upsides are substantial right if you can put together a, you think about like a really great retail brand in any, like a restaurant or a hospitality group. When they open a new unit, their cash flow usually goes up because if the brand is good, people are like, oh, I can't wait until we have a fill in the blank in our, in my town. And then once it opens there, everyone floods in and they spent some money on FF&E and they spent, they got a lot going on, but their cash flow immediately pops up. Just some famous examples of that. But when you're starting, you don't have that. You're not going to have that. You shouldn't expect to have that. You're going to have to work really hard to get people in the door and to and outperform the competition and do real re- retail things. Merchandise your store. Have a selection. But the selection does not have to mirror the back room or the inventory, right? Like you might, you might only have 15% of your sales that come from low-dose edibles, right? But doesn't mean, so you don't have to stock a ton of them, but you got to have them. And I would say 
these are green grass, greenfield segments. If you get that consumer to start coming in, like you get to do more business with them. You get their friends to come in. So eventually you might need to stock more of that. Terrific. But don't, you, I walk in some dispensaries, they're like, I've been to service stations that have better selection of like gum. This whole attitude of, like you said, we, I can sell weed, I can print money, weed is legal. And you're seeing where, again, our perspective obviously is a little bit biased, but I think it rings true. You need differentiation. You need to speak to a target consumer. You said right. something that I appreciated you highlighted was that specifically with that data point from Unpacked. And so it made me think through, because that is an interesting observation. Again, going back to just the previous parts of the conversation we're having. I'm aspiring looking at the market as it's continuing to grow and scale. I'm not going to necessarily name some brands out loud. I don't have to do that. But I've seen some of these larger brands where they've built a brand in their state. They've gone to state B. They've gone to state C. Now they're in state D, E, F. And right. maybe they were doing good at first when their market didn't have anything. I think and we were connecting at Cannabis Business Cannabis Marketing Summit. Wow, too many words. It made me reflect and think about the time when I was in New Mexico. I was in New Mexico right before the state went recreation. And I remember walking into a dispensary, probably illicitly, but they let me in. And I was just gobsmacked. I was like, oh, anybody could come in here and succeed. I was like, this is a joke. These people are just selling right. weed and baggies right. and they're saying it's gourmet. I'm like, this is a joke. Right. I can't wait right. to come back and see New Mexico with some brands being injected in. And so you have the split then. You have the multi-state operators, not always the true MSO, but these multi-state operators right. who are saying, hey, I see an opportunity in New Mexico. I see an opportunity in Oklahoma. I'm going to go take my brand from Colorado, California, Oregon, whatever, and I'm going to go set up shop here in this new market. I don't know how successful those brands are long-term because what I'm hearing also is, and you articulated as well, yes, when there's no brand, but as soon as those local brands get their shit together, People want to support local. They don't want to support right. these big brands. And so it goes back to my comment and my question around, will we ever see a Starbucks of cannabis? Because I think people in the industry aspire. Yes, they want to see interstate commerce. They want to have this brand right. domination. But again, the brands that have already been doing that, a lot of them, it's not been favorable for them. So I don't know really truly about the longevity or what them trying to go multi-state has actually done to hinder that brand equity. And so I'm just wondering if cannabis brands are more successful when they just focus on their community, their backyard, and more so, like you said, speaking to what problem am I solving? Not weed is legal, so I'm going to be the best weed dealer in every state, but I really care about my local community. I'm going to speak their language. I'm going to make products and flavors that speak to what they find welcoming and warm and just really leaning into that. Or is it possible to become a Starbucks of cannabis where everybody is your customer because everybody just wants weed? I just, I wrestle with that because I haven't seen that play out right now. And again, I know it's too early to tell long-term what's going to happen, but I find that these big brands don't actually succeed long-term. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. I think it's really hard to say. I don't think that intrinsically cannabis makes that impossible. Sure. I, I, I think that we're just very early in this arc. You think about how many car companies you and I have never heard of because they didn't make it through the 30s. They just didn't. It was like this big surge. Rush, excitement, people, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The tech boom of the you know, 2000 bubble, and there was the 2008, and then there's yeah. the current. So there's all these things, these sort of business cycles. A lot of us in the industry are just not, we haven't been around long enough to see these cycles. And if you look at the gray-haired guys and girls running around, like they've seen business cycles. They get it. They're like, oh, gee, things are down. <laughs> so, and to your point about some of the dispensaries in, in, in New Mexico, we're totally seeing that, right? Because what's happening is there's really two segments. There's the new people who opened since adult use. And there are a few that are really have established what I'm call a brand in the sense that people recognize them. They see them as a source of quality or a source of convenience, or they're doing something better or unique in, in the marketplace. And then there's the legacy medical suppliers. And a couple of them have been acquired by out-of-state entities, but they've kept their local brands. They've said, oh, this is a good, solid local brand in this marketplace. 
we're going to bring our money and our talent into this organization and make them more efficient. That's that's something that you see, they call it roll-ups in, in industries where people come in and they buy all the same, the local business in a certain segment. I think in terms of the national, like the Starbucks, if you will, I believe that the product companies will get there first yeah. because they intrinsically understand that brand, that CPG brand relationship better if they make it. And I do think that there's no better place to establish your brand in your local home market. Like you, you've got to make your brand there, but scaling it is you don't, if you have one unit, you don't do twice as much work with two units or with four units. When you've got four units, it's a completely different logistical operation, completely different way to establish branding and if you're in a couple of different geographic markets, even a state like Texas, which I realize is not adult use legal, but you know, the Austin market is very different than the Fort Worth market. It's what works in Austin ain't necessarily going to work in Fort Worth and vice versa. So it's not like, gee, I've made it in Austin. I'm going to go to Fort Worth and San Angelo. Like you're going to have to like, oh no, I'm going to have to work just like I did in. Yeah. Establishing you know, that brand in this right. market and that new locale. Yeah. I like to think that when I say brands, I say like businesses, but you know, they're brands. They naturally expand to build their niche. If you've got a good, if you're doing something good, something unique, there's some niche there. There's some population of consumers and they just absorb you. They're like, oh my God, this place is great. Like this business is, is great. And then you get to the edge of that and you're like, oh, now I'm going to have to fight for it. Like now I've got to really go. And so going back to Nike, they were a running shoe company. They were, they were a track shoe company. They were, they felt like was a, was a middle distance runner in Oregon. Like they, when they got into basketball, this was a new deal for them, right? They had to figure out basketball and they did. They got into hockey. They just bought Bauer. They just bought the skate company because there aren't a bunch of Canadians are going to put swooshes on their feet. They weren't going to do it. Like, and the market was important, but it wasn't huge, right? It was, it wasn't huge. It was very big, but not like. But soccer, they spent a decade. To, no one would wear Nike cleats. It didn't matter how good they were. Like, like the European teams would not wear those shoes. They had to fight for it. They really fought for that to, to get there. And so for cannabis brands, out your, the, the, your home marketplace is that, that you can't ride on that, but you've got to really learn from that. You have to really, and learn, don't just learn what worked learn the process for learning what works and then go apply that in your in your other markets. So when so we do a lot of cannabis brand licensing deals. One of my favorite things because they're so first of all I've seen so many bad ones. Yeah, I work in sure. tech a lot. I, you, you work in tech you see a brand licensing agreement or, or a, a joint venture or something like that. Like these documents aren't identical but they've got similar elements and they're I look at a cannabis brand license agreement. It's, it looks like someone went, did some digital dumpster diving on, and then they like clued some stuff together and the defined terms don't match and they're, and gee, left out. The, they're just really bad. They're, and they're bad for both parties because they're, they're not just bad for one party. They're, they're something else. But I look at these agreements and, yeah, this is really a roadmap for how you're going to work together. And one of the things I always, I'm always interested in, okay, you're a, let's just say a, a Colorado brand license against New Mexico. So you got your SOPs maybe for like how you got your, if it's a gummy or a cart, like you're a, like how, how you're going to make it. You got your packaging, right? You've got that, but are you the licensor going to do any brand support in this new market? Or are you just going to expect you to drop this stuff on the shelves and people are going to buy it? Because really, if you enter a new market, the license, if, you, if you're getting a franchise, if you're getting a Orange Theory Fitness, they do some, they charge you for it. Like you're part of your royalty arrangement, but they're going to do some brand support and they know how to do it. They've got more experience doing it than you do. And that's usually some frictiony, frictiony stuff there. But you see what you, what was awful is when you do all this work to do a license agreement and then the stuff doesn't sell and both parties are blaming each other. Their stuff didn't sell. They didn't do a good job. So they're, it's like, dude, you guys, you, you get, if the brand is brand new into this new market, the licensor really needs to help. They really need to help that seller understand. And my job is not to tell the clients what to do, but I do point things out. 
and say, hey, were you able to get any license to support or are they expecting license support? Or maybe I'm representing the license or and they don't have any obligation to do it. I was like, my input, my thoughts are maybe you might want to see if you can do some license support, right? Because that's some brand support because it's going to help your customers sell through and they're going to feel better about paying your royalty. Otherwise, they're just going to go find their own. You're basically saying you don't have to do some of this work because we're going to do it. You're going to have your service company brand, your brick and mortar dispensary, your whatever your, your thing is. But what you're saying, I stock great products. Like REI, like you under REI, you don't expect to see stuff you're going to find in Target. But, you know, so that's that I that have that kind of longevity, that kind of big brand reach. You've got to focus on those things. You've got to understand who you're going to be, where your niche is in the marketplace. You're going to have some geographies where there's better entrenched players, harder to get some market share in, but it's a long game. It's, it is brand building takes a tremendous amount of time. And by the time, if, if you and I worked, which would be so much fun to work on a brand together, like we just worked on a brand. Let's do it. We would, let's do it. Yeah. Like after weeks of talking about the graphics and all that, we'd be like, I love it, but God, I've seen enough of it, right? But your marketplace barely doesn't know you exist. You talk about how many impressions it takes to get people to remember something. Yeah. And meanwhile, you've got Leafly and Weed Maps. There's not a lot of channels to do like direct for purchase marketing. So it's even hard. That part's even harder too in, in cannabis because you can't do media placement the way you could in other markets. Yeah, everything you're saying, I appreciate it because it's reinforcing things that I've either learned the hard way or I'm navigating through and know that my listeners are equally chomping at the bits to try to have some sort of protection and also some sort of excitement to build a brand. And just recognizing that it is a very unique, ever-evolving entity and you can't take your foot off the gas. You have to constantly be paying attention to feedback from your market, feedback from your customers, paying attention to just the legalities, the compliance aspect of things, as well as just the perception that your brand has just in the marketplace in general against the competition. So I do love ending my podcast on a high note. I would say whatever comes to mind for you in terms of whether it's you personally in the industry, your firm, a certain client that comes to mind, or even if you want to just leave the listeners with what is, I love like action items, right? So what is one thing that people should be doing if they haven't done it, if, if they're listening to this and they're like, damn, I want to build a brand or I have a brand, I need to protect it. What right. is something that people could walk away and, and put into practice as well as what's on the horizon for you? Okay, thank you. So one thing that you should do today that if you haven't done it is to have a professional help you with a brand audit. And this does not have to be a big, super fancy thing, but you should expect to spend a little bit of money on it. And so this is if you have an established brand, right? If you're, if you've been doing business for a year or so, have them look at, let's hear your dispensary, your house brand, like your house mark, the stuff on the big sign. And as you have any of your own products that you're selling, or even if you have some services, like if you have a delivery service, that is, that it's something else, you know, just look at those and tell you this is, um, an issue in this state, this is an issue in another state, this is, or this is, this is these are the opportunities you, you could do. So that's, I think, helpful because if you're ever going to sell your company, if you're going to sell your cannabis company, people are going to buy it based on on sales. And, and the future is based on, I have a friend, so I've, I've worked in the beverage space a fair amount. And when big companies acquire beverage brands, they think about, they, they have a metric called contribution after marketing. Mm. And so if you think about it, what that kind of means is if this brand has momentum, then our massive well-tuned marketing engine We'll get, we'll get a dollar fifty back for every seventy-five cents we spend on marketing on an expansion, expanding the brand because there's already got equity there. So I would think about those things, and it's more and more sophisticated buyers. Certainly, if it's, a, if it's a product company or if you have a significant amount of sales in CPG kinds of products, that's really important for me for the future. One of the things I'm most excited about is doing more of the brand licensing work. I really believe there's a need for it in the industry. And I really believe it because I, again, I, I, let's just say I had very little exposure to the cannabis industry between college and about too many years ago. And I really have seen the industry and, and the products 
be helpful to a lot of people in all kinds of ways, recreationally as, as substitutes for something, quasi-medicinally or all kinds of things. So to me, gee, if you're going to get that next group of consumers in the door, we're probably never buying on the black market. We're going to buy on the black market, but can it keep you curious? That having good brands that they can rely on, they can hear about from their friends is super important. And for me, it's, I'm so excited to work on those relationships to say, who's going to manufacture? How's the brand going to be? How's that going to flow? Like, where's the, that's really fun and exciting. And I feel like, I know there's some good people working in it, but there's a lot of underserved um, people in our marketplace. So that makes me, I feel like I can just really do some good and contribute to the space. Yeah, absolutely. I know you can. I know you have been. And I'm excited for my listeners to tune into this episode and to continue to champion great branding in the cannabis industry. So thank you for joining us today, Seth. Really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. This has been so much fun. I look forward to catching up at a, at a conference again soon. Uh, me too. Absolutely. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the To Be Blunt podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed the enlightening discussions and insights we've shared today. But the conversation doesn't end here. I invite you to join my vibrant community of cannabis enthusiasts, experts, and advocates. So what can you do to stay connected and get involved? First, make sure you subscribe to To Be Blunt on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed our show, I would truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it. Your feedback helps the podcast grow and reach more listeners like you. Next, head over to our website, www.tobebluntpod.com, where you'll find a wealth of resources, exclusive content, and our show archives. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest cannabis news and events. Lastly, I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, and episode suggestions. Connect with me and the show on social media. Find us on Instagram at tobebluntpod and at theshadedtarabi. Let's keep the conversation going and work together to dispel myths, break stigmas, and celebrate the incredible world of cannabis. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay curious, stay informed, and stay blunt. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash tobeblunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.